Welcome to our Bible Institute. Most of you by now know we have a, an actual Bible Institute. We award degrees, uh, bachelor's and uh, associate's degrees in ministry if people want to earn them. It's all free. We had 705 students this morning, and I had two that I didn't get to to register. We had a higher number than that. But anyway, uh, 705. Uh, so they're all over the world. And things are happening all the time. I was in a great conversation this week. I think we're going to end up with some more um, students in Kenya that are kind of working together, and uh, we'll be helping them on their journey. Kind of fun to watch that. So uh, it's neat to be a part of something that happens all over the world when you're in a little place like this, I think. Kind of cool. So that's good. And um, we are working through the New Testament together in a little survey sort of class. Uh, There's a hundred and... 10 classes, I believe, available online right now. But we're taking one of those classes. Actually, I'm taking three of those classes and teaching them over time. Uh, and a survey of the New Testament just means we're kind of working our way through the New Testament, uh, not exhaustively. We've done that before, sort of verse by verse, but picking up some of the highlights throughout the different uh, um, books in the New Testament so you have an idea of what's going on. We're in the Gospel of John right now. We're spending quite a bit of time in John because it's uh, different in some regards in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three are very similar in a lot of ways and share a lot of the same sort of stories. John approached it completely differently. Uh, one of my favorite Gospels, but I say that about all of them. Uh, and, um, but it's a, uh, John just has a neat way of presenting things. And so we've been looking through the way he does that. And I've said with John, you know, John based his narrative uh, on uh, seven, seven signs that Jesus uh, performed and seven uh, I am sayings. And we've been seeing those as we come through. We're into John chapter 12, now close to the end. And so I think I'll start by reading you um, uh, John 23 through 26. And we'll talk about that and we'll continue on. So many chapters we can get done today. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies... It remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So um, as, as Jesus is always working with his disciples, sort of trying to prepare them for the time when he's not going to be with them any longer. The, 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 you know, what's going to take place, the crucifixion, um, resurrection. They can't grasp it. Remember the struggle that the disciples have through all of this is they're convinced that Jesus has come to set up the kingdom, to restore the Davidic kingdom to the glory of that time, that he's going to at any time overthrow the Romans and their oppressive ways, and he's going to you know, be set up as king, and everything's going to go back. Uh, the way Israel knew their history and their fortunes to be. Um, So it's very hard for them to get outside of that paradigm. So he's trying to prepare them for it, and they don't really get it until after all of those events have happened, and they kind of uh, then begin to piece it together over time. But he refers to himself there as the Son of Man. Whenever you see that in the Scripture, it's it's a a reference to Jesus as Messiah and what's happening. It comes from uh, Daniel 7.13. In my vision at night I looked... And there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. So it's a messianic reference, and, when, and Jesus is applying it himself uh, in those verses. And he does that. He, he 
makes everybody aware, if they're listening, that he's one with the Father, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that Jesus, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says things like that. And he makes very clear references to his uh, Messiahship and what he's coming to do. And he's trying to prepare his disciples for the fact that this time, the first coming, he's going to go and pay for our sin. He's going to offer his life in exchange for us. And then he's going to return. And when he returns, he's going to restore everything into its former glory. So that's what uh, is coming. Uh, uh, John often quotes uh, from the Old Testament. There's two particular verses. And when you're reading through John 12, that you'll see where he's quoting from Isaiah. Isaiah 53, 1 and 2. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So all of Isaiah chapter 53, when you read it, we believe is in reference to Jesus as Messiah. We think it's very clear to see that that's what they're talking about. Um, People who don't accept Jesus as Messiah believe that that chapter refers to Israel or to something else. But uh, we believe it very clearly speaks of Jesus and in Isaiah 6, 9, and 10, he, uh, he says, Go and tell this people, uh, God says to Isaiah, Be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And, and so Jesus, um, it talks about that. John records him talking about that. And what he's saying is, the struggle with the Pharisees is that they have so hardened their hearts that they, um, they can't see or believe any of them. And they're choosing not to. And that's really the, the saddest part of all of this uh, to me when you're dealing with the Pharisees. It's, I think it's fairly simple to write off the Pharisees as just a bunch of not good people. But the reality is uh, the Pharisees, and we've talked about this, were established with a noble purpose, which was to keep the um, God's Word, the Torah, from being corrupted by the culture. Uh, and, and yet over time, over a couple of hundred years, they, um, the only way they could think of to protect it was to continue to write rules about how everybody was supposed to live. And rule after rule after rule after rule. Impossible to keep. It, it made it impossible to get to God. And they became so sort of um, protective of their perceived position that they, they wouldn't let anything sort of come into it. So when God himself shows up, they refuse to accept the fact that he's come. And even though throughout the scripture it's prophesied and, and all these things are happening and, and yet they, they're just so hardened to it. And, and to me, the, the hardest part is they acknowledge that these things that are happening have to be from God, but they so dislike the package that they refuse to accept it. And they just decide that the way they're going to deal with it ultimately is they're going to kill Jesus. Very similar to the parables about the, the guy who owned the vineyard and they had people in there renting and he kept sending people to come and collect what was theirs and they refused. He said, I'll send my son. They'll get him and they kill him thinking they've solved the problem. It's a picture of what's taking place throughout John 12. John 13 pops upon us and again, Jesus is preparing in these next series of chapters his disciples for his death and for their ultimate ministry. And um, he's trying to teach them a big lesson in John 13 about how important it is to be humble and to be holy, and to avoid hypocrisy. And so what he does is he washes their feet. And you should read that. It's a great encounter uh, in, in John 
13, where he says, you know, basically, listen, this is what it's like to be in the kingdom. It's not about who rules over who. It's about serving others. And he said, that's the, the big message. And he said, look, I don't hold it over you. And, and then really he demonstrates all that by being the one who washed their feet. Why that's such a big deal is during that last supper, we know that, that we, all, we know that the disciples were arguing amongst themselves about who was the greatest. And culturally, we would know that, that there would have been a time when the foot washing would have taken place. And that in the preparation for the meal, there would be in the room the towel and the basin and the water for foot washing. And yet that job generally fell to the least of the servants that were there. And it was just Jesus and his guides in the room. And so they all knew that this foot washing should happen, but they were arguing about who was the greatest in the room, and so no one was going for the, for the foot washing thing. So when Jesus goes, it totally undoes them, to the point where Peter is saying, not, no, Lord, not my feet, you can't do it. And ultimately he's saying, no, no, we're trying to make a point here, you're really messing things up. We've got to figure out the hierarchy among us, and you've just messed it all up. And his whole thing is, you, you're missing the point, it's not about that in the kingdom. And then he goes on in John and he gives them the, the sort of new commandment, John 13, 34, 35, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. The, the newness to that command wasn't so much that they loved one another because that has always been part of the deal you know, we can go back and they knew it. When Jesus was talking, what's the greatest command? He love the Lord your God, all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, love your neighbor as yourself. What he adds to it in John 13 is, as I have loved you. And that's the big deal. So we're to love others as Jesus has loved us. Now, that cuts through a lot of stuff. Because when you take in the enormity of what Jesus has done for us at the cross... And in giving himself in that way, it changes everything. And it really helps us to see love um, in, in the way it's intended, which is a very selfless activity. Uh, and we tend to love in a very selfish way. It's about what's in it for us, and that's not what he's calling us to. So that's all in John 13. In John 14, um, Jesus has been telling his disciples enough that he's leaving them and they can't come that they're starting to be upset uh, and, they, and they don't understand it and so he's, he's, uh, he's trying to comfort them and he's also told somebody's going to betray him and so he tells them some neat things in order to calm them. He says, in effect, throughout John 14, listen, you need to continue to believe in me and in the mission that we have and the fact that I'm coming back for you. Uh, he tells them in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, so that they know they haven't believed in vain. And that's a powerful verse. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The rest of that verse is, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus says. He also tells them that they will do greater things than they have seen him do, which is pretty impressive because they've seen Jesus feed thousands of people with uh, a couple of fish and five loaves of bread. They've seen Jesus walk on water. They've seen Jesus calm the seas. And he says, you're going to do greater things than these. Uh, he tells them that um, when they're walking in his will, that whenever they ask him, he will do, ask in his name, and he's going to do it. Uh, he's going to send another comforter, the Holy Spirit. 
and that um, in the Holy Spirit, they will know that he's with them and that he will give them his peace. We spent a lot of time talking about peace a couple of weekends ago. So uh, Jesus says he's going to ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit. The, the word there is paraclete, which means comforter or encourager. The one who comforts and comes alongside is what that word means, to lead and to guide us in living for him. And so great promise. You know, we talk about that a lot here, that when we come to Jesus, uh, you know, the, the amazing thing is we're justified when we ask Jesus to be our Lord, our Savior, and, and God is now choosing to see us in the perfection of his Son. But then we're being sanctified, which means that at that time the Holy Spirit comes, dwells in us, lives inside us, and he's leading us in this process of uh, sanctification, of change, which happens until the time when Jesus, when we're with him face to face. Whether he's come back for us or we've gone to be with him, uh, when we're glorified, but we're all in this process that's going on and that the Holy Spirit is involved in our lives. You know, really, this whole series that we're doing on the weekends right now is about that, about yielding our lives to um, the leading of the Holy Spirit and, and learning how to be sensitive and plugged in to that. And, and then when we start to do that, life really changes in pretty dynamic ways. John 15 great uh, passage there that most of you know where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And uh, people sometimes have great leaves but no fruit. And, and by that I mean they look good on the outside but inside that it's just a mess and that this life in Christ with the Holy Spirit in us, it's really about an, an inside-out change. And that's the difference. You know, Jesus says in the scripture, you're like whitewashed tombs. You know, you look good on the outside, but you're just, you're dead inside. And that's not what we're to have in this life, and that we're to have lives that are fruitful. Another thing that we're talking about on the weekends, and that fruit can only be appraised, uh, really, as we, uh, only happen in our lives as we abide in Him. And then He tells them not to be surprised that the world doesn't care for them, because it didn't so much care for Jesus. And again, pretty shocking I don't know if you ever stop and think about Jesus comes, enters the scene, uh, changes the known world at the time um, by his actions. Um, in the height of his ministry, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people gathered around him and followed him. And, and yet, when he goes to the cross on our behalf, um, he's down to a very small handful of people that are still with him. And um, after all that happens in the upper room, again, a very, very small group. So uh, whittled down over time to 100, 120, something like that. I mean, you, you think about the very God and how dynamic that is. Um, but, you know, he does what he needs to do and then sends the Holy Spirit and the church just explodes out of there. But still, the, the world um, still has trouble with the whole process. You get that, right? You can talk about a lot of things, but not about Jesus in certain places. And just about anything. Oh, but don't talk about Jesus. Why? That's the deal. He said don't, and don't be surprised. It's part of the deal. Um, John 16. It's about the Holy Spirit. And he's sort of telling them when he goes and the Father sends the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit will be doing. And the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin. The Holy Spirit will teach the disciples. Um, the Holy Spirit will glorify Christ. Um, the Holy Spirit will give the disciples joy, it says. And remember, we've talked about joy 
that, uh, that joy is an internal thing. We did a whole message on joy just a little while ago. Happiness is more of an external thing based on circumstance. I like happiness. Happiness is good, but it's based on circumstance. Joy is deeper. It's inward. It's based on our relationship with Christ. Uh, John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's a great verse to know. One of those verses is hard because in the, it says in this world you will, that's, you will have trouble. Take heart, I have overcome the world. John 17, um, Jesus prays in John 17 what's known as the high priestly prayer. And uh, he prays in this prayer that he will glorify God uh, to make God known. He, he prays that um, his, his present disciples, the ones he had met, will be holy and sanctified and set apart to the word of God. He, he prays that his future disciples will be united together. Um, seven times in, in that chapter, in that passage, uh, he prays that his disciples would be one. Very important to him that his disciples would, would figure out how to uh, live in a way that honored him. John 18, uh, Jesus is arrested in John 18. He's gone to the garden. He's arrested. And uh, you, you need to know that the process of be, Jesus being arrested and ultimately um, beaten and uh, crucified but he was never not in control of that situation. He was always, he was willingly allowing that to happen. Very important you know that. He, was, he willingly allowed himself to be taken to the cross. He could have stopped it at any time. He was fully God. He could have called in legions. I mean, he couldn't, but he knew that this was the, the, the process. Um, in John 18, 4 through 9, it says that, that Jesus, when he was arrested, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked this army that had come to arrest him, what is it you want? Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he dropped the big I am on them. And whoever these guys were, it hit them big. That was a pretty, pretty big moment. <laughs> Down they go. And again, he said, who is it you want? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you, I am he, Jesus answered. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. So they all take off, and Jesus is alone. But he's, it's important you know he's allowing these things to take place. Uh, then he goes to the, the sort of mock trial that happens. Peter denies Jesus three times. Um, then Jesus is in another trial before Pilate. And uh, they, they go to Pilate. The Jews take him to Pilate because they want Jesus killed, and they can't impose the death sentence themselves. Uh, John 18, 36 and 37, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world, in response to a question from Pilate. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pretty big statement that he makes there. In John chapter 19, um, Jesus is crucified. Um, he's, he's, he dies. Uh, he's entombed. He's put in a tomb. Uh, in that process, he was ridiculed by soldiers. We know that. Uh, 
ultimately declared not guilty by Pilate and yet still handed over to be crucified. Uh, And the Jewish leaders say uh, in in verse 15, we have no king but Caesar. And that's huge because in effect what's happening then is the established religious community is giving up on God as their king. That's a huge thing that happens at that moment in time when it comes right to it. So that's what's going on in that part of the gospel. And uh, we'll uh, be back for more next week. If you're watching my video, thanks for watching. Come and join us when you can. We'll see you soon. Bye.